So I knew I recognized you from the hallways of McGill University. <laughs> well, I, I guarantee that the, there was no like photo put up. I was like not a, a, a good student. I, uh, I I dropped out of pre-med because the classes start at 8 a.m. I'm like, I need to do something that starts from noon. And it was like, it was history and sociology. So that's how I ended up uh, not graduating as a doctor. <laughs> so you're from BC and yeah. you went to school at McGill? Yeah. my I grew up in uh, Calgary and my family um, went to uh, Vancouver when I was like nine years old. It's a funny story. My old man, both my parents are Vietnamese refugees. Actually, quite a bit. As you said, you're from Montreal. It's quite a bit of a pretty big Vietnamese community in Montreal uh, because of obviously the French. And my dad just kept on going west. So I was born in Calgary and he's like, I need to go one more city west. It's like Vancouver. Like, let me get back as close as possible to Asia. But like, obviously, the Pacific Ocean is massive. So <laughs> I don't know what he's trying to accomplish, but he got So he got there. But yeah, so ended up going to Miguel. But, uh, Man, dude, we could talk about, honestly, we could spend the whole hour talking about Miguel, man. It's like, I can't believe you dropped out. I mean, maybe it was the right move, but I had a freaking blast there. What was like the highlight from your Miguel experience? The So I lived, did you live in a uh, residence or were you kind of, uh, where Where did you grow off the island? No, no, no. Do I look like an off island person too? <laughs> <laughs> that joke is so niche. <laughs> like no yeah, one is going to get that. No. Yeah, exactly. Right. You're, you're three listeners from Montreal. Um, yeah. I mean, you guys are a pretty big audience. You might have more than you expect. Um, honestly, man, it was, uh, it was, I mean, it's going to sound lame. It was the partying. It was insane. It, it, the, the reason I went was because I heard how insane Miguel was and it just delivered on every front. Right. And I've only been back twice since I graduated. So it's like twice in 10 plus years. And now looking back, I think I, I recognize how insane it is that McGill's campus was literally in downtown Montreal. And like within two blocks in any direction, it was the craziest party street you could have. And yeah, I, I mean, I did nothing of academic value or like professional value while I was there. So like that, yeah, that's it. To answer your question, it was literally partying. Yeah, I feel like, you know, being social, partying, whatever you want to call it, like that just sets you up. <laughs> I hope we don't have too many young listeners, but that just sets you up for like, in a lot of ways, success. Like if you're able to like, go into a party, meet people, connect with people, whatever, like it's it's really underrated in terms of like setting you up for success, doing what we do, well, writing on the internet. No, 100%. Totally agreed. What I would say is this, is if unless you're a very clear track, I mean, everybody knows this, it's cliche at this one, but the, re, the, the purpose of university it's not the education, right? Like you can get a better education, Dude, not how cliche the is that? That is the it like is very cliche, I, I, right? I thought you were going to go into Twitter is a free university for you know for ninety nine point nine percent of people. Yeah, I mean that is the, that is the truth. Oh well, let's let's bring let's bring it to Twitter. Actually, the best part of Twitter is in the university part. It's the socializing part. I mean, how many people? I know I know for a fact that. You and a number of other, you know, quote unquote creators or people that built pretty large audiences, you were all in one group chat together, right? It's like, it's a social thing. It's like, uh, it's a very social element. So even though we call Twitter free university, the best part of Twitter is still the social part. Yeah. So that group chat is me, Sahil Bloom, Sean Puri, Sam Parr, Nick Huber. Yeah. yeah that's Austin Reeve. Basically what happened was, uh julian shapiro was also in it at one point he 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 left but when he left a, the group chat it's, it's another such, such that's a another small story group. 
just one day you wake up and you know you know what the group chat just is i like i i don't leave group chats because how awkward it is to see that person leaving the group chat i just have to mute it but like, yeah. you mute the group yeah anyways go ahead man also side note Cortland allen was also in the group chat also left the out. group chat yeah <laughs> so it's all for everyone um but yeah we we created this group chat we called it initially the 100k club it was like peak covid summer i think 2020 spring and summer 2020 and the idea was how do we build big audiences we all had 10 to 15,000 twitter followers at the time and we're like how do we get to 100,000 now fast forward today like sahil has almost a million yeah. everyone in the group chat has like 300,000 and around you know that number and it's definitely changed our lives do you think that could still happen today or do you think it was a very covid specific thing I mean, it's happening today, you know, I yeah, feel like okay. we're actually witnessing it in like the AI world. Like there's a bunch of AI creators that I know are, that are kind of like banding together. And like, like I see them like pumping up their stuff on Twitter. So, yeah, it's happening. The thing that I always tell people about Twitter is just the idea of like you'll get the top 1% of any field, right? Like they'll just be there exchanging ideas. And, you know, as soon as you have a couple of people in that field that are quote unquote the top of their field exchanging ideas, no one else in that field that wants to compete can cede that ground, right? They're like, oh, fuck, this person's like, he's got the mind share here. So now I got to jump in here so I can't take it. But what essentially happens is that when you look at Twitter, it's not about, hey, what is your vertical industry? It's like, can you get yourself into that 1% where everybody's hanging around in a giant group chat, right? And like, if you can just, whatever you're, like, I always use a car dealership guy as a great example. You know, his niche is very niche. It's car dealerships, but the information is so good and it's just so uh, engaging that he's elevated now where he has celebrities and athletes and founders and CEOs following him. Right. So just got to get in that, got to get in that, 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 that little layer on top. That's all I got to say. That's like my advice. Yeah. I think the, you know, the, just to comment on that, like the cool part about Twitter is like you could get into that room and, that's actually like why I initially me and Sahil. Oh yeah, the name of the podcast, Room Where yeah, It Happens. Literally. Like yeah. that was the idea is like bring people uh the top one percent have conversations. And I think it always reminds me of South by Southwest. I think Gary Vaynerchuk used to have like after parties in his like hotel room which sounds weird but i, I swear I don't, I don't think it was weird no it sounds, sounds totally normal we listen we started <laughs> off with mcgill party dude after parties in hotel room totally get it yeah people are gonna hate this episode or love it one or the other <laughs> so i think he would just like you know tim ferris would be there and you know garrett camp and travis from uber would be there and they'd have these like jam sessions i think they were called and probably i mean i was never invited so <laughs> by the way like you know, I was never in that invited, but I always wanted to go because I was always like, imagine being a fly in that, you know, on the wall and hearing these conversations that these people are having, like amazing. Yeah. Twitter allows you to make that happen. So I just, just want to be clear. I think we're on the same page right here. One top 1% doesn't mean like financially. We're not saying, oh, you know, you have to no. be financial. We're saying like whatever your field is or whatever criteria you choose to judge your field, like that 1%, like let's say you're a medical researcher you're really good at publishing or whatever, right? And you're just, you're just passing. That's, that's what we mean here. Yeah, exactly. And I just want to be clear that get, whatever happened in Gary's room was probably <laughs> kosher. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, okay, so Trung fan, internet legend. Um, <laughs> uh, you know. I'll take that. I'm Canadian. I mean, you are. I, I mean, can't when, accept when e too many compliments. 
when Elon Musk replies to your Twitter, I consider you notable. <laughs> okay. You are okay. notable. Who who are you and what are you doing? So as mentioned, obviously partied a lot of Miguel and uh, had no real plans for my professional life. Although you said you, you told me on the pre-chat you dropped out of McGill. So you, you totally get the idea of like not really knowing what you're doing in university. Right? That's right. And like I dropped out, like, you know, we went to school around the same time. Like it was like crazy if you dropped out back then. Like Yeah. In the in the like the late yeah. aughts in like the oh five to 010, the tenor. Yeah. Insane, yeah. right? And it was now obviously it's way more normalized. But uh, yeah, I didn't really have, I, I might as well have dropped out. <laughs> it didn't make a difference, right? I could have gone and started earlier. So uh, in whatever my career ended up being, uh, so I went to Vietnam for, ended up being there for five years. And I don't remember the time, but it was 07, 08. That's when the Beijing Olympics was 2008. And everybody's like, oh, this is like China's moment, right? So actually I, I planned to move to Shanghai. I had a lot of buddies that were moving there. A lot of Caucasian dudes. And they're just like, we're just going to learn Mandarin and like, we're going to figure it out, right? And then I'm just like, wait a second, like I'm Vietnamese, like I can speak enough Vietnamese and I have family members. I'm just going to Vietnam and try to ride the same like East Asia wave. And the, the, the running joke about Vietnam is it's always five years away. So any any year you get to Vietnam, it's like, oh, we're five years away from being like the next Asian tiger. Right. But it's been that way for two decades. A lot of your listeners probably know me from being an idiot on Twitter and like being an idiot in terms of posting about business. Two things happened in Vietnam that was completely unplanned, but led kind of that route. So number one was, uh, I because I had no real hard skills, I, I'm like, okay, what course can I take remotely that I can just do? CFA was the easiest one, right? It's like the one that you can do, they test in Saigon. I'm like, I'm just going to do this. Put a little discipline around my life and like work in a quote unquote real career. So I took the CFA. And then the other thing I did in Vietnam was actually the thought, the thing I really wanted to do a decade ago was to be a comedy screenwriter. So I wrote and sold a comedy screenplay to Fox. I co-wrote that. And I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. I'm going to be a comedy screenwriter. But I mean, I know that you know people in the entertainment industry is like, you write or, or option a script. You're still like at the 10 yard line in your own end zone. Right? You got 90 yards to go and you have no control over the rest of that. Uh, so on and off for about three years, um, uh, I thought I was going to be able to make a movie. Uh, it never ended up happening. But uh, TLDR moved back to North America, uh, got a real job, quote unquote, real job in uh, fintech. Worked for a fintech firm. You might have heard of it. It's called Kensho. It's based in uh, Boston. Sold to SMB Global in 2018. And uh, and then from there, somebody in you at Kensho was an early investor in the hustle, or or an early-ish investor, and then made the introduction to the hustle. And then that's how I ended up going down this route of being like a more public-facing writer a business thingy okay and the hustle like what was that experience like so the hustle was actually a very good match because it was like everything says like you you know the tone of the hustle right you know sam obviously and the way they write is like it's like an irreverent take on business i'm like okay perfect it combines my kind of interest in business with my real interest in comedy and uh it was super interesting the time i was there because it happened during covid and we had a difficult patch where quite a bit of turnover, probably not surprising anybody during that time. And the writing staff for the actual uh, daily newsletter, because I mean, you write a weekly newsletter, right? You already know, like, I write a weekly news- newsletter. It's like, it's already cognitively difficult enough to just like be on the grind, but like a daily newsletter, like, I mean, you know, Austin, you know, Sam, the daily stuff is truly a seven day a week job if you're in the writer's seat, right? Because 
at a minimum, it's six days because you got to hit all five days during the week, but you just never stop thinking about it. Cause you just wake up like, Oh crap. Like I got, I got to make sure I got the next one. And it's it, honestly a recipe for burnout. If you don't have like a team in place, unless I had amazing editors, uh, a shifting kind of co-writers, but I'd say the experience that was great with the hustle was I'd never written at that cadence for that long. And I'm like, okay, well you can do this. I was feeling myself burning out towards the end, but it was nice to know that how much you can actually pump out if you just kind of have to do it. Right. And it was during COVID too. So what else are you going to do during COVID? It feels like there was a group of you that really took off at the hustle, right? Like I feel like, you know, Steph Smith and there's just a bunch of you, like what was in the water at the hustle that so many of you became successful? Well, I mean, you'll know this from knowing Sam is like, he'll bring on board maybe non-traditional people. Right. And I mean, I think with Steph, he found Steph from her writing uh, as like a solopreneur, like a, no, a, a digital nomad. And it's like, oh, this is just really good writing, right? And uh, it might not be a traditional Ivy League route, uh, former tech reporter, but, but interesting, knows what it's like to be an entrepreneur. And that's probably valuable for the entrepreneurs. So I think um, probably a combination of having uh kind of a wider net of who would be allowed to work at the hustle. Cause ultimately our editor, when I was there was Brad Wolverton. He was a former Washington post guy, right. Or like very traditional media, but he was able to wrangle in kind of more non-traditional writers. So, you know, I think a lot of credit goes to, uh, I think Brad was a really big hire uh, for that team. He's still there. I believe he's running uh, all of HubSpot's uh, editorial stuff now, but non-traditional writing, which is very much like, consistent with what's happened with Substack now, right? The best writers I know are not people that came up as journalists. The best writers are former industry people. Like, I mean, who's going to outright community stuff or what your expertise is, right? Like, you're going to be the best about that. Like a journalist is not going to outdo you on that. And I think that applies to basically every kind of vertical now. Although the I flip-flopped on how I feel about traditional media. A bit of it is because I am so in the tech Twitter bubble that I'm just like, oh, you know, screw the time, screw whatever, X, Y, Z. But the reality is that the actual reporting that we all riff on and write on, like that is actually extremely difficult and very like time and financially uh, intensive, right? Like, even when you look at some of the best solo newsletter writers, I mean, they're just riffing off whatever the Financial Times or, or New York Times or Bloomberg or uh, Wall Street Journal has written about, right? Because that's still ultimately the brass tack, like you got to still have that original reporting. So I, I'm, I think I'm at a middle ground now. I respect old media, but I, I do think that there, there's a lot of questions uh, about uh, their models and, and kind of their incentives now. I mean, I write a weekly newsletter and I plan to even write more. And I couldn't even define the word reporting to you, like properly. Like, I don't even okay. know like how I should be citing sources and how I should be doing like good reporting. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like so many people on Substack, like me, we we just have ideas and it's a platform to get our ideas out there. The way yeah. I think about it is, you know, if you're going to touch on a story, you literally have to call five to 10 people. Like that right. to me is kind of what it really comes down to, right? Like the time it takes to set up these calls, chase people down and like get the primary source versus, you know, we're often riffing on these primary sources right which yeah. is much less time intensive but you add your own ideas which obviously is cognitively difficult yeah so i remember like earlier on in my career as an entrepreneur i would get these dms from reporters being like hey do you have 10 minutes or five minutes 
for a quick interview on something and I get on the phone and it was just them like citing a source or doing a little extra research. And I remember like thinking to myself, like waking up on a Monday morning, let's just say, and you know, the meetings in the afternoon, I'm like, clear my day. I'm talking to someone from the New York times, you know, (laughs) (laughs) just so excited. And I get on the call. They ask me a few questions. If I'm lucky, I'm getting a link, you know, right. Right. And that's like best case, or maybe like best case is actually link back one sentence or two sentences. Realistically, I'm getting maybe a link. And, uh, I didn't realize at the time why they were so excited to speak to me, but now I understand it. Like they need to speak to me in order to properly get their piece across the finish line. Like, like you're giving them the the inner workings, right? The inside baseball that they like. If if they wrote it without your insights, like that, that's just a that's a that's a wire piece from the AP, right? Like, what's the point? Like, just go to AP for this. But like you're giving like literally that one sentence where it's like, oh, here's an insight from entrepreneur. So what did what did that make you feel about the process though? It's like you're saying you're saying kind of even the playing field in your mind yeah. of like who brings value. Yeah, okay. it changed it changed the the power dynamics at least in my head. So initially I was like, okay, there's these gatekeepers, and if I get them to write about me, there's a greater chance that I get customers, users, venture capital, potential people who want to buy my company, like might be reading the New York Times might say, hey, we need to buy this company because we saw it in the New York Times. Like that's literally how deals get done a lot of the time. Like we feel this is a threat because it's in the New York Times or whatever. (laughs) Wait, has this happened to you though? Like uh, with your own personal entrepreneurial journey? Yeah. Yes. Like, okay. So somebody's like, I saw him in the times. Oh, that, yeah. that's interesting, man. Yeah. Like I remember I was trying to sell my company in 2013. It was called five by to a social network called stumble upon. And I was just trying to get the, the term sheet from Facebook at the time stumble upon. And there was a couple others and I just needed a little extra juice, like an extra like reason for them to like move. So I hired Ed Zitron, uh, if you know Ed Zitron. Oh, yeah, um, I've read Ed's stuff. Yeah, and he he got us in TechCrunch. And it was like... Through industry connections? Through industry connections. Okay. I paid him $5,000 to get us into TechCrunch, basically. <laughs> and he <laughs> got you across the finish line. Damn, this yeah. is some inside baseball, man. Have you ever told this story? Never told this story. This is amazing, man. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's baller, yeah. dude. It was published, let's say, on a Monday, Tuesday. By Wednesday, Thursday, all of a sudden, Facebook came around, StumbleUpon came around. Just so happened that they had read the article, and uh, it makes it it makes a difference to be in the press. I've been in a couple uh, of conversations with uh, kind of on the solo independent side, and the idea being, hey, how valuable is the traditional press? I think what you're saying here. Oh, granted, this was ten years ago, right? Yeah, but. I feel like it probably pulls the same weight though. Like I remember when I was, so I took a break from Bloomberg, but when I was writing over the past year, I still remember the kind of outreach you'd get. And I guess on Twitter, I have a big audience, but there's still some people that I couldn't reach out to or that I know from AB testing, as in like when I reached out to them on my Twitter account, nothing. When I'm like, hey, listen, I'm writing something for Bloomberg, totally different ball game, right? It's like, it still means something to get into the terminal, for example, or in your case, I guess TechCrunch is still... I mean, 10 years later, uh, I like your thoughts, actually. 
TechCrunch now versus 10 years ago, what do you think the influence is? Or like, oh, uh, I mean, it's gone down same? significantly. Okay. Significantly. At the time, it was what like, is the TechCrunch equivalent today? It's gotten more decentralized. Like, I feel like okay. at the time, it was there was only a few places that you'd go for for tech news. It was like Pando Daily, I think. Um, but th- there wasn't that much, right? Like, tech felt like more niche, and TechCrunch was like, TechCrunch is the holy grail. Um, today, I feel like, you know, Packy McCormick, you have Lenny yeah. Substack, you have like more Mario. niche. Mario, Ben's Bytes for AI, or we just launched one called You Probably Need a Robot.com for AI. Like there's these niche gatekeepers um, that exist. So the attention is way, way more spread out. Yeah, that's a great point regarding uh, Packy and Mario Ashu because you've obviously seen some of their uh, like quote unquote sponsored deep dives or even ones that aren't right is the, they clearly are just hitting the exact market and to your point that where TechCrunch used to serve but I mean Packy I think Packy's up to two hundred thousand subs and I know Lenny's is Lenny's is massive right Lenny yeah. might be half a million at this point Lenny is the second most subscribed Substack period. In the in the entire on the entire platform, yeah, it, that is wild, right? That is absolutely wild. It's he's wild. He's a new TechCrunch. There you go, right? Yeah. He's a new TechCrunch, legitimately. Yeah, Lenny is the new TechCrunch, but he he focuses more on like SaaS. But you're right, Lenny in some ways is is the closest thing to the new TechCrunch that we have. A lot of people ask me, Greg, how do you build products that foster community? Well, I've got good news. That's exactly what Late Checkout does, my company. We partner with the largest brands in the world and fast-paced startups to design products that resonate with your community. We add a couple interesting clients every single year. So if you're interested and that sounds like you, email frontdesk at latecheckout.studio with what you're working on, what you need help with, and don't forget to mention the Where It Happens pod. Thank you. Going back to your story, you're at the hustle. What happens? How long are you there for? About a year, year and a half. Like I said, like a little bit of burnout feeling when uh, when uh, the daily the daily pace for about a, a, a year was fast. It was a lot. I wanted to get back to writing uh, longer kind of stuff. And... I mean, you know, the deal had the HubSpot acquired Hustle in February 2021. Uh, within a year, I think a lot of uh, a lot of people had ended up leaving, uh, which is pretty typical for these type of things, anyways. And uh, I knew that I wanted to get back uh, to kind of writing at a at a less frequent pace, and also just explore the stuff that we talked about, like being more being more solo and independent, and kind of seeing where it, uh, where where you can go. I mean, you'll know this. You've been over a decade. It's just like. I prefer taking on random opportunities uh, and not being tied necessarily to one place uh, just because a lot of it has to do with the fact that I have built up good distribution, right? Uh, it's a little bit different maybe than a year and a half ago, but as you're building up the distribution and you see, okay, well, that's half the battle. In my eyes with the content, it, it literally is how, how much effort you put into the writing of the, of the initial thing or creating that piece, you have to put the exact same amount of effort in distribution, right? And well, that's why people make the trade-off. They're willing to work for a large publication because they don't believe that they can do the distribution on their own. But you can actually can, as you can tell, as you know from your group, the 100K Club, it's possible to happen. 
So I just want to get off the pace of the writing. I've never really stayed at a place for an uh, extended amount of time. And I still have this North Star in my head of being a film like writer of some nature. And what I found with writing independently and kind of using that as the main outlet was, you know, I do get a lot of interesting DMs. I meet a lot of interesting people just from what I do on Twitter. And, um, you know, moving the ball towards creatively stuff I want to do. Like a lot of stuff for me is, even though I kind of work in the business world, I'm like the things that get me excited are the more on the creative side, particularly humor. So what are you working on? And it feels like you have some interest in film, writing, AI. Um, how does it all come together? What's your, how do you describe what you're building? Here's the through line. The through line is this, is I know what I'm going to be doing every day, basically for the next call it five, 10 years. Like I can already see it, right? It has to do with the age of my kid where he's five years old. So, you know, no matter what, I know that, uh, you know, the commitment, obviously you got to get a kid, right? So that's the main thing. It's like, that's levering me. And it's like, okay, so how do I build something I can do for 10 years around the fact that I got to raise my kid for another 10, 15 years, right? And what that is and what I've come to realize over the past year and a half was I know I can just do the content pace that uh, some of your listeners might see or if they're not familiar, it's like, you know, I'll, I'm on Twitter every day, a couple hours, similar to yourself. Uh, I write a newsletter, I do a podcast, and it's just slowly building the audience. As you know, it's like it just it just compounds, right? It's just corny, but like it, the benefits, especially of audience building, is all going to be towards the end, right? It's like uh, I wrote about it this last week. Uh, Jack Butcher, who you had on recently on the show, he obviously has that amazing visual, right? Of like it's just a straight line going nowhere, and then it just kind of implodes. And and, the, and there's a point on that straight line where you're like, oh, this is pointless. But it's just the idea of particularly audience building, uh, the, the benefits really do accrue towards the end, right? In, in so many ways, too, is like the you're picking up more people, but then the people you're picking up early on the journey, they want to see you win. And they're liking you more because of how much time they're spending with you. So when you're asking, like, you know, where's the through line? The through line is this. I know I can keep doing the audience stuff like content that I enjoy for an indefinite amount of time. So through that through line then becomes, okay, if you have a big audience, what can you do with that? So the AI stuff was essentially, you know, I'd advertise in my newsletter, I'd advertise on my podcast, but a lot of those advertisements weren't even products that I used. And the, the highest value thing for somebody with a big audience is like, you know, you own the product, right? It's like, it's like whatever Jocko does with his health products or Rogan now has a cut and like on it, right? It's like you find a product that you can uh, use your distribution to sell. The AI stuff made sense to me because the app that I launched, Barely AI, I actually use it quite a bit. I use it a ton to copy edit my own stuff. I don't have a team. So uh, writing and editing are two such different kind of, uh, you know, the cognitive switch is quite large and it's really annoying to edit your stuff. So I use uh, uh, Barely, which is built on top of a lot of uh, any, it can be on top of any large language model. Obviously OpenAI is a big one right now, but we can, we plugged into other ones and uh, I'm sure Google is going to release one soon. I, I, I know Facebook or Meta just released theirs. It's like, we're going to be able to route through this app, which essentially, uh, I guess they call it a thin wrapper, but the thin wrapper with uh, two ways I put it is, I think the UX and the convenience side, I know you've talked about it previously and used it maybe a little bit, but I think the, what we're seeing was that the convenience side is if the underlying models are going to be largely commoditized because every browser will have it, like every productivity tool will have it, is people will be like, okay, well, which one will I actually use every day because it's convenient, right? And we're finding like, we have the Chrome extension, uh, the one short, uh, one keyboard shortcut uh, app, and uh, obviously browser access. 
people are liking that it's all kind of in one place. And uh, there's definitely enough of a market for those individuals where uh, the lifetime value for this product is higher than I can get on just ads. So, yeah, I, I was just in a meeting with my team right before this, and I think we're launching like five companies over the next, you know, over the next six weeks. So around your distribution, around my distribution. Exactly. I think it's, it's a good point that you have, which is once you're known for something, once you're 1%, how do you become the advertiser? 100%, so right? With the AI, with barely AI, like you were relatively early with that. How did you get into AI, LLMs and productivity software? So, uh, but I'm going to have to give a lot of credit to my co-founder, Parham. Uh, we worked together at Kentro, which was the uh, fintech startup uh, that I mentioned uh, that I worked when I came out of the States. But he was head of infrastructure there. So, I mean, he'd spent his entire career, like a decade, basically plugging, well, at the time, it was a lot of data, like a lot of NASDAQ data, S&P data, into kind of a, a nice UX and making it very usable. And the LLM stuff was kind of creeping up. Uh, obviously, ChatGPT's model, underlying model, had been around for almost 18 months and they just kind of slapped it on top. And uh, I, I'm sure you've read the stuff. They didn't even, outside of Sam Altman, they didn't even think that it'd be a success. They're like, they're, they're, they were rushing it out the door because they knew that the moment was coming for Mindshare and they just kind of rushed it out. Um, so I don't think we were particularly early. Like, I mean, Jasper and Copy were around probably a year plus uh, before we launched. And now everything was just swept away by ChatGPT anyways, in terms of uh, uh, mindshare. But what, what I will say is that it is definitely one of the situations where like, you know, the tide lifts all boats. It's just the, the biggest tide ever. And even ChatGPT and OpenAI have acknowledged there's just no way they could service all the different uh, uh, customers they want. So they did that deal with Bain recently, right? To, to, to do uh, generative text and images for Coca-Cola. But like in that press release, they're, they're like, they're, we can't, like we're doing one of the Fortune 500 companies, like a single one of them, right? And I think the long-term economics for OpenAI and Microsoft, uh, which obviously owns about, will end up owning 45, 49% of it, is they're going to have to be kind of a cloud provider and they're going to want as many people to plug in as possible. So I guess their balancing act, which I'd love to, your thoughts on is, you know, how, how do they have a balancing act between having their own product and trying to incentivize just everybody to build on top of it. So we were, I don't think we were particularly early. I do think that we got in right before that crazy rush. And to be honest, it was it was when ChatGPT came out that first week, I'm like, fuck, this might, like, we might be done. And, uh, but then we saw actually that it really helped clarify what our value was, is just some people want the UX a certain way, right? That's just how some people want it. And that clarified for us is like, okay, let's, this is our market. We're not building the next Google. We need to find 10, 20,000 of these customers and get them to pay. And then you have a mid seven figure business. Am I trusting that my distribution can do that? So those are kind of the, that was kind of the equation. So what, what, what do you think when like around um, kind of thin wrappers and, and open AI competing against potential other, other AI plays? So my take on like where we are in the state of AI and building on top of it is it feels very similar to how it was in mobile. Um, so in mobile, basically what happened was you bought an iPhone and there were default apps. Like there was no, you know, the first version of the iPhone didn't have an app store. Um, oh yeah, Steve Jobs hated the idea of an app store because he didn't want an app to drop the call. 
Because I don't remember, but in his is in in the iPhone presentation, he's like the killer app for the iPhone is the f- a phone call. We've created a better phone call. So he was fucking really didn't want to ruin the phone. But yeah, you're right. There was no app store. No app store, and it got preloaded with some default apps based on what they thought people wanted. And Apple knew a few of those apps because from you know 2000 to 2008. There was a huge industry around pocket PCs, which were just mobile windows and Palm Pilots that we like often forget about. So they understood that there was notes that you needed, you know, photos, maps, email, like a really shitty browser. Exactly. So they knew that that's the phase we're in right now with OpenAI's business. And then you're going to see Google uh, as well. Um, So they've identified, okay. Text to image makes sense. Boom, Dolly. You know, jukebox music. They've they've identified like the and I hate the term, but low hanging fruit for the space. Today, you know, we're we're, we're recording this February twenty seventh. Today, I saw that Snap added like AI, OpenAI integration. So now they're moving from like default apps to okay, partner apps that we can trust. The next step is platform. So the app store for OpenAI or the app store for Google Bard. And yeah, what you're building is like you're building an app before <laughs> before there's an app store, basically. Right. You're instead of relying on the distribution for an app store, you're relying on the distribution of your Twitter account and email, et cetera. And I think that there's gonna be like OpenAI and Google isn't gonna figure out themselves how to build every niche ai based product and they don't want to do that so i think there's going to be a huge opportunity over the next five years to like go and build a seven-figure ai first product i i love that framing of the idea of uh they basically figured out so the first iphone came with 16 apps like kind of everything you mentioned notes email browser a contact list the idea of like and a great parallel here is like the open ai playground right or the uh the the text playground it's like, that's kind of the first tooling you'll see everywhere. It's probably just gotten a meeting with three people and they're just like, hey, what are like, what are the main things we can do with text? We just created 20 of them, right? And um, apart from the use case, different use cases you might have with the LLMs, the other thing we've seen with Barely is, so we've been reached out quite a bit by like SMB corporates, not even tiny, like 10, 20,000 employees. They want to integrate some type of LLM into their company, but they don't want to do it through ChatGPT right now. And then OpenAI just doesn't have the resources to hold their hands because they're too small, right? So Barely is actually very effective in the sense of, you know, we're working on the standard corporate stuff like SSO, single sign-on, localize all all data so you can upload and just keep it uh, on-prem or like not in the cloud because people obviously have a lot of uh, concerns about privacy. And uh, we've seen enough outreach of that where, you know, if anybody listening here, and I'm sure there are quite a bit interested in AI, is like the one thing I cannot stress enough is the market is so big that even though like the mental gymnastics I went through and like kind of like the anxiety when a chat GPT came out, it just it just came to mind. It's like, listen, they're just not gonna be able to service everybody because it doesn't make sense for them to. And it's like what you said. A, they're not gonna be able to figure out every use case. B, they're not gonna be able to service everyone. There's going to be enough room for a lot of people, maybe not generational stuff, right? Like, I don't know how many Googles or Ubers, or Airbnbs will come out of this uh, cycle, but it's great for solopreneurs. There's no question about it. How much anxiety does being built on 
OpenAI, Google, whatever, give you, you know, because they could just decide we're no lo longer giving access to, you know, chat GPT or, or they could just say it's going to cost a million dollars a month. It was a lot more anxiety when ChatGPT came out in November, yeah. but it seems pretty clear since then uh, that there's going to be enough competition in the space. I mean, even stability, right? Like stability obviously is known for uh, stability AI, probably known for stability diffusion, but they're working on a large language model and, and, and their whole their whole ethos is to be open source, right? And then you just saw, again, we mentioned Meta dropped one last week. Google has to drop one. I know Meta is more research focused right now and they haven't opened it widely, but there's almost no question that Google is probably going to have to within this year. So yeah, I mean, it is scary. It's scary in the same sense that I believe is the way you'd use a cloud provider is like, yeah, could Amazon, you know, screw you? by jacking up prices and like making it really expensive. I think it's called egress fees when you have to leave their cloud. That's basically what they're doing. Uh, but uh, the trade-offs are worth it. And I mean, otherwise, like I'm not going to build my own LLM either, right? So the reality is that I'm screwed if they really do pull that. So although there have been enough discussions where like, like are we going to have to just do or, or <laughs> like a not, or like an interesting one enough where you can still do something super niche and, uh, and kind of exist. But yeah, definitely anxiety. But I think it was much less diminished than in November. That was a true shot. Like when when ChatGPT came out, the information had a great article about Jasper. So Jasper AI was the and you probably know the guy. It's like unicorn uh, AI uh, startup that does a lot of copy and marketing uh, text. But I read that information article, and so they're in like a Slack group, uh, like a, a, a multi cross functional Slack group with OpenAI because they're such a big partner. And then when ChatGPT dropped, they're like, "Hey, uh, what's going on? Like, this is like directly competitive." And you know, the opening guys like, "Yeah, no, 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 don't worry about it. It's like it, it, you guys, you still have access to the different models, and uh, it's just, it's just like a, just a marketing uh, ploy for OpenAI." But if they raised at 1.5 billion. Like, what was the ambition for that company? It's probably a 10 billion plus company, right? Like, is that still possible? I, I don't know. It seems scary that ChatGPT is out there and Microsoft can burn X amount of money. But I think the market is just so massive that uh, it's worthwhile for them not to screw people and they'll just make up money uh, on whatever their, their token model ends up being. Yeah, I think people really underestimate how big the AI market is because what is AI? It lifts productivity. It uplifts productivity. So if you uplift productivity 7%, like we're talking trillions per, per year globally. Product, productivity, and, and this is another thing that we found with Barely AI, is like, so about half of our usage is outside of North America. I don't think people understand the multiplier that OpenAI provides for non-native English speakers that are trying to compete and, and not even necessarily compete, just even just like, listen, I don't know how much you've dealt with uh, uh, people in Southeast Asia or East Asia. I'm sure you have quite a bit. It's like, first of all, English, the English teaching industry is massive in East Asia. It's just absolutely massive, right? And that's just to teach English, not even to write, not even to read. It's just to teach the pronunciation of English. And if you throw something like ChatGPT, OpenAI, any large language models, now you have people that are, have all the other skills, right? Discipline. Uh, understand uh, accounting, understand finance, understand how to use the internet, 
but the truly large barrier was writing literally just good emails. You couldn't even write a good cold email if you were like a, a Vietnamese executive because you just don't have intonation. You just don't understand the nomenclature, right? This is a massive change for you. It is truly a massive change. We're seeing huge usage in Southeast Asia for uh, barely AI. And even though our pricing is Western-based, for some companies over there, it's a no-brainer for them. It's not. Ex- I mean, it's expensive relative to like how the per GDP per capita. But if you're running a business that can do seven figures from Southeast Asia, it's a no-brainer to be able to communicate properly for two hundred dollars a year, twenty dollars a month, right? So I think that's the other part of it. Totally agree with you on the productivity, but I think the massive unlock is going to be even the playing field in a lot of ways for for non-native English speakers. And uh, we had a, it's funny, we, I do a non-investment advice podcast with Bilal and uh, Jack. And we, we randomly had a, a sailor on last year, Michael Sailor, and he had a great line. He's just like, whatever you do, you can sell for more in English. Like if that's, you know, the, the language you're interacting, obviously it's a lingua franco. And he's like, and whatever you buy, you can buy it for cheaper in English. And I think that matters a lot. Like forget about just the productivity, which I totally agree on, like 7% boost, like you said, we're trillions of dollars or whatever hypothetical number, right? But the unlocking of literally two to 3 billion people to compete in the lingua franca of uh, the internet, which is English, I think it's a huge and and we can't really compute what the opportunity is for that. Obviously, I speak English, but growing up in Quebec, like, you know, you speak English and French and you're in North America. So you kind of like see, you understand U.S., you understand selling into the U.S., but you also understand that you might speak French as your native, you know, 93% of Quebecers speak French uh, as their first language. So for me, like, I've always thought about like, how do you, how do you localize different products? and niche different products like barely ai for you know vietnam for example could be a huge product and and i just find that americans don't think often like that they don't think like oh hey let's like they just think about like if you know if you make it in new york you make it everywhere right like that's like the the mentality but i don't think that's necessarily true i i I believe in speaking to different audiences and the way they want to be spoken to so i think there's a ton of opportunity in just creating proven products that are AI first and just focusing it on non non-western countries. Well, let me let me use an example from I mean you 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 had a viral thread a couple of days ago around uh, yeah. I think a vendor owed you $109,000. 109 like, fuck how do I get this? 109500 <laughs> but who's counting? Yeah. So you so a vendor owed you six figures. Let's yeah. call it, let's call 100k. Yeah, and actually, while I was reading it, I mean, the solution ended up being very simple. It was like you you prompted ChatGPT to give you an email to send hypothetically to a vendor that owed you X amount of money, hadn't paid in a Y amount of time, right? Like simple enough. But I think there's an insight in there, and I think it's why it kind of went viral, right? Last time I saw it was like twelve thousand likes or something, which is millions of uh, impressions. But like, I think the insight there was something, and you you touched on it. It was like the idea that. It's good call back off, right? It like, yeah, I could have written that email. I could have written yeah. it. But there's mental blockers for you to write that email. I think that, so for the listeners that haven't seen it, the, the text of the email is something along the lines of, you know, hey, vendor X, like, uh, we've given you five months uh, to, to pay this bill. And we'd much appreciate it if you pay. If not, here's some recourse, right? Like, you literally could have written that. But the mental blocker to be like, fuck, do I want to be the bad guy? Like, do you know what I mean? It's like, do I really want to do it? No, but I want you to apply that. Think about that mental blocker that you as a West, a successful Western entrepreneur had, right? To write that English email. 
no, no, apply that to the 700,000, the 700 million Southeast Asians, right? Yeah. Imagine trying to write an angry email from like you're a Malaysia manufacturer. You're trying to get a, a, a New York based company to pay you six figures. Where do you even start to communicate that properly? But like you, I think that's what the beauty about that. Like it was such a simple solution, but I don't think people understand the implications of it. So literally now you can have angry emails that are effective written to sound like a lawyer hell this might be a bad thing but now anybody can do it but i think it's a great equalizer i mean a lot of our team is based in canada so obviously they're super nice and they're they're just like (laughs) they're just like i can't write this email well they were basically like you know responding to that you know that vendor and just being like hey just following up would be awesome to get paid you know it's just like it needed like a bit more oomph Oomph, exactly. It was missing some yeah. oomph. And uh, they asked for my advice and I was just like, chat GPT. Like, um, you know, initially they're like, we're going to give it to the lawyer and let the lawyer just like handle it. And at the time we were like, we were over budget that month on legal fees. On legal fees. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, let's just, tr- let's do a fun experiment. And we did it. And I just, I got that notification like, 95 seconds after I sent the email from the executive of that company. And he's like, yeah, sure. No problem. We'll pay you. I was like, you you knew it was good content too, right? Yeah. Cause I know you're a content guy. You're like, yeah. Oh, this is good content. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. I was telling uh, someone on my team, I was like, it's worth it. It's worth the money just on the content alone. I'll just <laughs> forget the 109. I mean, dude, yeah. I was looking uh, uh cause I don't know. Uh, this is specific for the users that aren't super Twitter heavy, but kind of the way you plug your products on Twitter is after like a long multi-tweet thread. And, and and kind of conversion is typically like whatever. If you can convert 10% of uh, likes from the first tweet to the bottom, like you've done a great job. I was looking at some of the likes towards the end of the thread. I'm like, damn, dude, this is like, this converted really well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'll share some of that inside info. Like, you know, one of the things I launched in that thread or put in that thread is a design service called dispatch 5k a month (laughs) yeah 5k a month i put it like in the tweet i was like hey listen like this inspired us to to launch this product that like we actually get paid on you pay us 5k a month and it's unlimited designs for your company and it's like landing pages and websites and apps unlimited for for only 5k a month and from that tweet alone you know that'll generate six figures in arr just from that tweet just from missing. Did you actually launch it because of that thread? Yeah. So or did you already have that in the works? We had it as an idea. We're just kind of like, hey, like a lot of companies, we, we just had a request. Like a lot of companies just need, you know, our, our short staff, but they want like small design tasks and they weren't right for our like traditional design agency. We've just been referring it to other agencies because we're just like, hey, it's not a fit, not a fit. And we're like, hey, w- wouldn't it be cool to have like a monthly subscription? And it was, it was on the back burner. Um, and then when that happened, I was like, hey, great forcing function to bring that back. Yeah. Imagine if we can get, you know, six figures a month or even seven figures every single month being charged. And it's, yeah. you know, not, you know, we work with a lot of Fortune 500s, it's, you know, net 30, net 60, et cetera. Well, there you go. You need 20. You need 20. And I looked at, it's not shocking at all that you got at least 20 because I looked at, Man, again, this inside baseball for people that don't use Twitter. It's like you can kind of do like a rough hand conversion of like likes to like clicks. Yeah. I'm like, whew, this this thread was like, <laughs> this is like 
that's hilarious man so like this thread you put a little hit on every single level there's like five layers of winning here <laughs> and it and it generated thousands of subscriptions to you probably need a robot.com yeah yeah exactly right um so i'm curious then so for you because i mean you obviously jump quickly on different uh, different uh ideas that you think are, you know, quite large, uh, potential and outside of the ones you kind of mentioned, uh, kind of the community, the newsletter, are you looking at doing a lot more AI stuff, uh, around products that you, cause you say you launch five to 10 a year or yeah. you said you get five companies in the works. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I've been in, in some form into AI for a long time. So like my co-founder and I have late checkout, you know, I mentioned stumble upon, like stumble upon was like the OG you know, personalization and AI Recommender. company. Yeah. Right. So that's how I got into AI. And and also I studied computer science at McGill. Shout out McGill again. <laughs> I learned a little from that. And yeah, for those of you who don't know, StumbleUpon, it was basically like a, you know, you put your interest in and you press a button and it would serve you interesting web pages based on some AI and ML. Kind of similar to how like the TikTok for you page really works, um, but for web pages. So I've been interested in a while, you know, for a while, but, you know, with all this buzz over the last 12 to 18 months and a lot of our clients asking us for AI product designs, I just wanted to build like a free community because my belief is like, if you attract the smartest people into a community and you have like, you know, workshops with them and masterminds with them, you get to know them. Like you, even if you're not an expert, you can become an expert. Um, so the fastest way to learn is to start a community, in my opinion. And I wanted that for my team as well. So from that, I think we're going to build a lot of AI stuff. A lot of the difficulties in AI is is not necessarily specific to AI, right? Like, again, you're not going to build probably a no. large language model. The challenges is distribution, packaging. And I mean, this is your area of expertise, right? Like this is yeah. and distribution packaging is literally like what you do. Like you worked at TikTok, right? Yeah, I was an advisor to TikTok. Okay, yeah. because of the stumble. Oh, because it recommended stuff. With the, oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. makes sense now. Well, yeah, actually, the reason why is because I had built like this app, FiveBy, that got acquired. Um, it was this video discovery app similar to how TikTok worked. And TikTok hired, when TikTok, after it was re rebranded to TikTok from Musical.ly, they hired a bunch of YouTube execs, basically. Um, and I knew a lot of those YouTube execs from my FiveBy days. So they brought me in to help them YouTubeify and grow TikTok. Because at the time, well, it was an app for like 12-year-old girls. <laughs> so we need to ask them. We got, we're gonna, there's a big elephant in this room. Mm. Should the United States ban TikTok? Give me your honest opinion. Should the United States ban TikTok? Or force a sale? What do you think? Are you, you too close <laughs> to this one? What do you think? Oh yeah, I think there's no question. I, I, I've never written about this. I think they should, they should ban and then force a sale. Um, my logic is, it's a little cold warish, but the analogy I always use is this: if this was the 20th century, it'd be like if the Soviet Union owned ABC, CBS, or NBC, right? Like one of the three big television stations that had access to hundreds of millions of Americans. And this is what TikTok is. And I'm not, I'm not saying that there's every single day someone within the CCP is like going into TikTok saying like do X, Y, Z. But we've seen with Chinese tech and Chinese industry, sometimes you don't even have to say. It's it's understood what you need to do, right? And uh, I mean, Yi, uh, Yi Ziming, the former, I mean, the, I guess he stepped down as a CEO of ByteDance, are still chairman, very involved. 
was he had to apologize for the the, the like, I don't know pronounce the towel the newspaper app. He's like, yeah, CCP is like, we're not liking the content here. So we had to make a huge public apology. So they need to force a sale. I'll tell you what's funny. Obviously, there's only like five or six companies in America that can buy TikTok. But I think it's going to end up being owned by Microsoft, which will just, and Satya is already the biggest animal ever. And he's going to own TikTok, right? And he's going to probably buy it for like $30 billion. Uh, I think that will be the outcome. So I don't know what you feel about that. But yeah, I, I don't think it should be owned by, <laughs> by a Chinese company with the CCP on the board. I mean, I agree. I have to agree with you. I think Google or Microsoft, but I, like it can happen to Meta because anti-competition, antitrust, right? Yeah. Um, it could happen to Disney. Disney could buy it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because Disney actually looked at buying Twitter in 20, uh, 2016. I think they had a yeah. term sheet. Everything was ready. And then Iger... Like woke up one day is like I don't want to deal with this fucking I don't want to be, deal with the moderation bullshit that's going on there. Google is interesting because then they own like short form TikTok and yeah. longer form YouTube, Netflix of course. Actually, let's game this out. I'm making a prediction. YouTube is going to buy TikTok. They're going to spin out YouTube. It's going to go public. Five hundred billion dollar company done. <laughs> <laughs> I love clip it. this editor. Clip, clip this for what happens in the next twelve months. <laughs> no, I, I think uh, I think that makes sense. I also think Satya buying TikTok, integrating OpenAI, and then oh turning goodness, it into dude. a super app would be the great. It'd be the, it's undefeated. He's, undefeated. <laughs> that's it, right? Just go off in the sunset. That what, what what other purpose do you have to exist? Like Satya, go retire after that, man. Yeah, totally. Dude, this has been fun. I gotta, I gotta run, but this is, this is. Greg, I do appreciate the time, man. That was awesome, dude. Come back anytime. Uh, where could folks follow you on Twitter and and plug the yeah. podcast also? Yeah, uh, we'll keep super, super simple. Everything's on my Twitter bio. It's Trung T Fan on Twitter. Uh, non investment advice with uh, Jack Butcher, who uh, was previously on Greg's show, and then uh, Bilal Zaidi. And uh, yeah, Barely AI is B E A R L Y dot AI. Uh, it's free to use to try. And uh, if it's in your UX wheelhouse, I, I get a lot of dopamine with new signups. So uh, think about that. <laughs> I love it. Go follow him. Thanks, Trung. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks, Greg. Later. <laughs>